गुरुर् ब्रह्मा गुरुर्विष्णु गुरुरेवो महेश्वरा गुरु शक्षात पराब्रह्मा तस्मै श्री गुरवे नमः I pray to the Lord in the form of my Guru and in all forms because all forms ultimately are divine and when you have a Guru he helps you to learn to see that same God and to love that same God everywhere and it doesn't mean to close your mind it means to be willing to listen to wisdom and truth wherever you hear it it may just come from a child it may come from anything but when your mind is attuned to truth you will find opportunities to recognize it in everything and so as datatreya said that ancient sage of india i have 24 gurus And he went on to enumerate them, and I won't enumerate all of them. But one of them was a bee, because the fly will sit on dung as well as on sweetness, but the bee will only sit where it can sip honey. So he learned that in this world, only it only sip the sweetness of good things and beauty, where God's love is manifest. And he talked about another one, of a young woman, married woman, whose in-laws were coming to visit. and she had no servants they were still poor but she didn't want the in-laws to know they were poor and so because she had to do all the cooking herself she was preparing the food and she had bangles on and the bangles jangled together so she removed all but one on each wrist and still they would sometimes jangle together and so she removed one and had only one bangle and that that I learned from that that it's better to live alone Now that's not necessarily tied to that woman's state who was married but he understood that that the more you can live in god and with god the less jangling there is in this world and so we need to learn to see truth everywhere not as so many fanatical religion people religious people do that oh this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong you know the um uh some some emir or something i don't know um one of the arabian chieftains tried to destroy the pyramid because he thought this was created before uh, uh, muhammad therefore it must be evil well he did a good job and managed to just tiny damage a little tiny portion of it it was much too large to be destroyed by cannons it's the fault of human beings when people say oh a pox on religion it just uh, it creates so many wars and so on it isn't religion that does it it's man if man didn't have religion to fight about he'd have politics if he didn't have politics he'd have racial uh, color skin if he didn't have that he'd have one thing or another i remember when i was a little boy my father gave my brother and me each a present different present and we were just for the fun of it each saying mine is the best no mine is the best and My dad came into the room after a little bit and he said, "Oh no, I made a mistake. This was for you and this was for you." And so, I think in fun, but nonetheless we began immediately boasting about how this new one was really much better than the other. And this is human nature. Whatever you have, you think it's the best of all. Be open-minded enough to see that God is in everything. One time I went to see a movie called The Light of India on the life of Gandhi Yanishwar and uh, a devotee who was an Indian said that he had seen the life of Mira 
He said, if you had seen that life, you would hate this one. And my guru said, why do you make such comparisons? God is everywhere. And God expressed in saints is beautiful in so many different expressions. So don't make comparisons. It is said that comparisons are odious. They are especially odious in religion. I love Krishna, therefore I hate Kali. Why? Kali is better than Krishna. Why? It's all one. And so we must learn to reach the point where we see that same one God, even in a stone. Doesn't it say in the Gita that one who is, is a true knower of God sees with an e equal eye a Brahmin, a cow, a dog, everything, it's all the same. So in that spirit, let us live in this world. There was a very interesting passage here. It's, uh, it begins with the saying before, which I have read in one of these things. I'll read the last part of it. The image that many people have of the Master, one that has project, been projected perhaps by an overbalance in the number of women disciples, is of someone so sweet as to be almost cuddly. I smile when I think of his other side. He was lovable, certainly. He was just like a mother, and utterly so. Yet he was also the very personification of power. The subject of that power deserves a commentary of its own, and this is the conversation number 159. For he told us that in a former incarnation he had been William the Conqueror. As I said, what, as I say here, in fact, what an irony for me personally. I'd been raised until the age of 13 within the English school system where little good was said about William. Indeed, I considered him to be one of the great villains of history. And here, suddenly, to my self-admitted dismay, I found that this villain was my own guru. Naturally, on first receiving this news, I made it a point to read up on William's life. From that reading, I learned that what people had found villainous about him was, above all, apart from the obvious fact that he frustrated many people's selfish desires and ambitions, but it was his aura of enormous power. Baron after Baron pitted himself futilely against him, even while William was a boy, he had to fight for his birthright. Later in life, his own oldest son, Robert, named Curthos, fought against him, motivated by fierce envy. William had an important role to play in history. His vigor was not due, as historians generally suppose, to personal ambition. He acted in obedience to God's commandment inwardly. You see, God does play in this world also. He takes active part in the world. It's not only that he's only teaching spiritually. Sometimes when there are great new currents that are needed in history, he will play a role. And uh, it's a very different kind of role, but he is interested in man. He tries to help man and nudge him. For instance, England was created really by William the Conqueror. And it was through England that the world became united through England, as England came to uh, India, to Fiji. To, they said that the world, the sun never set on the, English, on the British Empire. So he acted in obedience to God's command inwardly. His was a hard life. So also were the times he lived in. He had no alternative but to respond appropriately to the countless challenges he faced. 
Had he been more acquiescing, he would have failed in his task. It must be remembered that God sends not only nourishing rain upon the earth, but also lightning, drought, and raging floods. William was a divine instrument in an important destiny. He forged into a single nation a patchwork of loosely knit, warring fiefdoms. England, too, had a divine destiny to unite East and West, and thereby gradually to help mankind in its struggle to enter a new and higher age, this age of energy, which my Param Guru said is Gwapara Yuga. William was, in fact, a deeply spiritual man. It is said of him that he never for a day missed receiving the Eucharist at Mass. He built and strengthened monasteries. His closest friends were saintly men, Archbishop Lanfranc, who in the present life, Yogananda told us, was his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, and also Anselm. In an age notorious for its promiscuity, it is said of William that he was completely faithful to his wife. The purpose of this book, obviously, is not to analyze the life of William the Conqueror. I mention it here to underscore an important aspect of Yogananda's character, his extraordinary power. This was evident to all who knew him personally. It was an aspect of his nature that many people have overlooked or else have known little about. Again, as I said, that widespread lack of awareness may be due to the fact that apart from Dr. Lewis, hardly any man seems ever to have spoken or written much about the Master. Even Dr. Lewis, though a deeply devoted disciple, saw his guru only in terms of his own personal love for him. He never showed a deep understanding of the universality of the Master's mission, nor of the universal love that he bore everyone. Sananda Lal Ghosh, a brother of the Master's in this life, years later wrote a book about the Master's early life called Mejda, but Sananda wasn't a disciple and never did anything actually to serve the Master's mission. His book, again, is completely personal, although, although certainly fascinating. Many people have commented, in fact, how surprised, not to say shocked, they were when they first heard the Master's voice on a recording. Resounding clearly in that voice is no ba of a gentle lamb, but the mighty roar of a spiritual warrior. I'll never forget that day when he was talking at a garden party in Beverly Hills, and he was talking about urging people to take seriously this concept of forming communities. And the way he spoke, you'd never expect of that sweet master that you read about and that you intuit and feel in autobiography of a yogi that you listen to his woman disciples when they talk about him being so loving and everything. He was powerful also. Oh, you can hear it on his records. I, Yogalanda, I'm praying for you. He talked with power, but in that talk in Beverly Hills, I have never in my life heard anything so powerful. He was telling people to go north, south, east, west, everywhere to spread these communities. And I'm not going to shout it because I might hurt the purity or whatever that is, the level of the microphone. But it was so powerful that I vowed that day that I would do 
everything I could to make that dream a reality. And I suppose I was born to do it in a way, because after all, at the age of 15 even, I was already thinking seriously of starting communities, and I got all my friends interested until they found out I was serious, and then, of course, they all lost interest. Well, when I met him and I found that this was one of his ideals, and especially after that talk, I just vowed I would, I would put my life on the line to fulfill that dream of his. And of all the people who listened to him, some 800 people, I'm the only one who heard him. You'd think with that much power, everybody would have heard him. But I know that his present representative, when I mentioned to her, when would we start communities, her answer was, frankly, I'm not interested. Not interested in something that interested our guru so much. Well, I'm not going to criticize her. After all, each one of us can only take a little bit of the truth which he receives from the guru. <coughs> but I think he's very happy that I have started these communities where a thousand people can find something that is that makes their lives meaningful. I've had so many people come to me and just thank me for building Ananda. As I said recently, if each one were to live in a different office, people could say, well, it's perhaps his nature to be like that. When you see a whole community gathered and they're all like that, you begin to realize that it can't be that many individuals of that kind of temperament of peacefulness, kindness, sweetness, love, courage, desire for God. This has to be what they're doing that makes all that possible for them because each one is different. I remember saying to somebody who was not a part of Ananda how often when you see members of a different gurus, followers of different gurus, members of different spiritual societies, how often it happens that they somehow seem to be similar. And he surprised me by saying, yes, I, I see that also in members of Ananda. And I, was, I didn't really like that because I like to breathe eccentricity, which is to say that I urge people to be themselves, not to be like me or to be a follow according to some pattern that they think they ought to live by. So I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, they're all open-minded. They're all very friendly and loving to people. They're willing to, be in, uh, to accept that they've been wrong and to change directions. And I thought, well, okay, I'll accept that. And it is true that Ananda people are special in these ways. But they don't have the Ananda flag, and that's what I like that where, wherever you go, you can carry your temple with you. You don't have to go to this temple and refuse to go into that temple. Your body is your temple. Wherever you go, that is where you have to sit and worship him. And so you have to dare to be different, as this next song, which we'll sing today, says. Dare to be <clears throat> different. Not, I didn't, it doesn't say try to be different. It says, dare to be true to your own inner vision. And I don't mind it when people disagree with me, because I don't say I'm always right. Truth is what matters. I don't want people to agree with me just to agree. I try to avoid that kind of people because they're the flatterers. They're the people who don't have enough guts in themselves to think for themselves. I like to have people, not those who 
on principle try to be different, but those who are sincere with themselves. Those who, if they see something the way, this way or this way, that's how they see it. They don't have to say, well, out of respect or out of fear or out of obedience or whatever, I will agree. No, what's the use of such followers? Dare to be different, don't try to be different. That's the essence of it. Dare to listen for the truth, even if all society around you thinks differently. There's a beautiful song of Rabindranath Tagore's, Akla Choro, Go On Alone. I've written that into a, a couple of songs also. <coughs> Don't, <coughs> excuse me, I'm <coughs> having something in my throat. Don't think that because society thinks in a certain way, you have to think this way. I used to get a little annoyed with my mother because she would try to teach me table manners, and I would think it just doesn't matter. This is not morality. This is not truth, whether I use my fork or a spoon or whatever. As long as I'm neat, as long as I'm respectful. I didn't like that kind of thing. But I must say that well, I was called eccentric because I always just followed what I believed in. And that belief may be very different. I attract that kind of people, and I'm grateful for it. It's not an easy thing to say, all right, I'm going to defy society. I'm not going to do the way my parents tell me to. I'm not going to do what anyone thinks is right. I am going to believe in truth and follow truth as I see it. Not many people can do that. That sets those who come into a spiritual path apart from everyone else. And if they come onto it, not because their parents were this way or society is this way, but if they go against society, not against it, but in their own way, even though society disapproves, if no one else will go, I will go. That is the attitude of a true devotee. With that attitude, you can grow spiritually. But if you want to follow the ways of custom, Mind you, custom is good because it brings you up to a certain level of rectitude. Beyond that, it keeps you there. You have to have the courage to say, well, what is really so, no matter what others think. So this song, Dare to be Different, enjoy to you. Dare to be different, dare to be free, dare to roam far like wind on the sea. Fly like a gull, soar high on the air. Be strong in your courage when others despair. Never in anger, never in haste. Go without pride, be never abased. Freedom is yours, if freedom you'll give. To all give it freely. In freedom you'll live. Mountains that stand up tall to the sky Tell us no dreaming is ever too high. Dare to defy them, brave that high peak. You'll never know failure if bravely you seek. Dare to be different, dare to be free. Dare to roam far like wind on the sea. Fly like a gull, soar high on the air. Be strong in your courage when others despair.